Hey, all y'all podcast listeners. I'm Chris J. And I'm Sarah Ebear. Welcome to a new episode of the All Y'all podcast. All Y'all is brought to you by Holiday Lanes. Um, as we record this episode, it is Christmas and we're heading towards New Year's. If you're looking for something to do, Holiday Lanes is open on New Year's Eve and they've got special lane pricing. You can reserve a lane at Holiday Lanes for New Year's Eve by visiting bowlholidaylanes.com. Thank you, Holiday Lanes. The All Y'all podcast is also brought to you by Maxcentric, which is Shreveport Bossier's only locally owned Apple authorized service provider since 2006. All Y'all is produced entirely on Max. If you want to get great service like we get from Maxcentric, you can visit them online at maxcentric.net. All Y'all is also supported by the Rafters Football Club. This is our local national premier soccer league team. They've got season tickets on sale now at raftersfc.com. And I think they start playing matches in April of 2016. So if you're into soccer, check it out and get your tickets now. We are excited to share Wesley Hall Parker's story from Brush With Fame, which takes us all the way to San Francisco in the 1990s, where she met two fascinating celebrities. And to get some perspective on who they are, we talked to a dear friend and All Y'all podcast listener who we knew could place Wesley's story in context. I'm Dr. Lisa Nicoletti, and we are in the Meadows Museum. I teach art history at Centenary College, and I help to direct the Meadows with Bruce Allen. So Susan Sontag is a really important cultural critic. She died in 2004, uh, and she is, uh, for me, she's very important because of her work uh, on photography. That's literally the title of it, on photography, that was a collection of essays from 1977. And she started to theorize about the importance of this medium that was really being overlooked by museums and not collected in any kind of serious way. And she started to give contemporary photographers a lot of, um, just a lot of, analysis, which really wasn't happening either, like Diane Arbus, for instance. Um, she was also somebody who was very active in protesting war, in criticizing um, various political policies, and she just became one of the most prominent members of the American intelligentsia uh, in the late um, 20th century. Annie Leibovitz was her um, very good friend, partner. There were always these kind of questions about what their relationship uh, actually entailed, and they never, during their time, um, allowed people to have that kind of insight into what kind of a relationship they had together. They were, uh, they were life partners. They supported each other. Leibovitz is important because she was, well, right now you think of her as being the most probably famous American contemporary photographer because she worked in all these popular magazines, really starting with Rolling Stone, going on to Vanity Fair and Vogue. And when you think of some of the canonical images of American famous people, you are most likely thinking of one of Leibovitz's images, be it the last professional photos of John Lennon, um, shot just hours before he was killed, um, those famous images of him curled up next to Yoko Ono, our Leibovitz, um, that, that nude image of the pregnant Demi Moore. If you're an arts and literature student, you're a well-read person living in Berkeley in the late 90s, <laughs> 
if, if Leibovitz and Sontag walked into the room, it would be something that changed the room. It would, be, it would be a huge thing for them to walk in together, especially in San Francisco in the late 90s, wouldn't you say? Yes, <laughs> absolutely. They are not only famous by then, but they are visually striking people. They, they look like no one else. You know, Susan Sontag with her shock of white hair and with, you know, black hair with a shock of white in it and Leibovitz wearing these fantastic trousers and great, you know, like wingtips or Oxfords with this long um, blonde hair. They look like nothing else, I think. Within their career, did they know the fame that they had achieved? In the 90s? In the 90s. In the 90s, oh yeah. Yeah. So when they walked into that place, they probably knew, like, I'm famous. Oh yeah. Like, if this is in a, where, a bookstore? Or uh, they probably have a shelf almost to themselves at that point in Berkeley. You know, it's almost like as you're describing this, it sounds like a joke. You know, like Susan Sontag and Annie Leibovitz walk into a bookstore in Berkeley. And (laughs) you're just waiting for the punchline. Now that you know a little bit more about Susan Sontag and Annie Leibovitz, we hope you'll enjoy Wesley Hall Parker's story just as much as our live audience did during the live storytelling event, Brush with Fame. Here it is. I'm Wesley, and I'm a Shreveport native. I grew up here, and um, that means that some of you know my parents, and a few of you might even know my grandparents, so I have to sort of begin with a disclaimer. They raised me right. They taught me to be a um, polite, kind, and considerate and gracious young person, and so they bear no responsibility at all for the story you're about to hear. Um, It's not their fault in any way. I don't really know what went wrong, but it has nothing to do with them. So um, with that out of the way, I'm going to tell you something that happened um, in 1996 on Christmas Eve in San Francisco when I was uh, 23 years old. To rewind just a tiny bit, the summer before I was um, 22, and like a lot of 22-year-olds, I was trying to figure out like how to get myself into the world, how to just be somebody doing something and getting paid for it. I was a book nerd, still am, so I got an English, I was an English major, and you're not really very employable when you're an English major. And so then I got a master's degree and got a lot of debt, and then I was still really not employable. And so then I did a publishing internship on the East Coast, and that was really super fun. And I was like, yes, this is what I want to do. I want to make books or uh, word-type things, uh, like magazines maybe. And I thought that would be a good career path. I didn't know that the publishing industry was like imploding and that they didn't pay you well, but it was, it was a path, and so I was going to take it. So I went on the internet to do some research, which was really probably not a very good idea because it was like 1996, so there were like five pages on the internet at the time. Anyway, so I went on, I read one of them, and it said there was a publishing industry in New York and in San Francisco. So I was like, okay, all right, I'm going to move to New York or San Francisco. Which one? I don't have a winter coat, and I don't know anybody in New York, so I'm not going to move there. And I have a second cousin in San Francisco, and I know a couple of people there because I went to grad school out there. So that's where I'm going to go. And I've got like two grand in the bank because I haven't paid back that money for my student loan debt, so I'm rich. And I'm going to San Francisco, so I put all my stuff in the car, it fit in the trunk, and I went. I did that, you know, romantic thing kids do. Like, it was my 23rd birthday present to myself. I went to San Francisco, and I decided I was going to make it. And I had no idea what I was doing, which is probably why I thought it was a good idea. 
and immediately realized that I was not rich, I was broke, and I needed to get a job immediately, or I would be going back to Shreveport in like two weeks. So um, I needed a job like now. And also, since it was like the mid-90s, well, the problem was there was no jobs. There was like a recession. I mean, if you were like a humanities person like I was, like the engineers could get jobs, but we couldn't. So everybody was like super underemployed. So I had these two roommates, and they were both Stanford grads, and one worked in retail. I mean, she was working for free in a nonprofit trying to save the world on her days off, but she worked retail. And my other roommate uh, waited tables, and she was working in theater at night trying to, like, you know, be a star. Um, but, you know, she's waiting tables. And so I got a job in a bookstore, and I was supposed to be writing the great American novel at night, but really what I did was um, drink beers and smoke cigarettes on the stoop. Um, but anyway, so that's, that's what we were doing, and so I was working in this bookstore, and it wasn't just any bookstore. It was this place called Green Apple Books, and it was this really cool place. It was uh, like if M.C. Escher drew a picture of a labyrinth that was a bookstore where all the walls were made of books and there were like stairs moving everywhere in this way and that way, it would, that's what this bookstore was like. It's still around. They have used books. They have new books. They have all kinds of vinyl you can flip through. They actually, it's two houses next to each other and they bored a hole from one house into the other. And so you can just kind of climb around in the space and get lost in it. So it's kind of a destination in this dive bar sort of funky way if you're in San Francisco. But it was a terrible job. Like I made $6.50 an hour and I could barely make rent on it. Plus it was like a socialist bookstore and they had a union and I was already in trouble for not paying my union dues, which were like a couple hundred bucks and I couldn't afford them because I made $6.50 an hour. Anyway, so I'm working in this bookstore and I'm new to San Francisco and I feel like I don't fit in because I'm the southern kid and I'm not getting it, so I decide I need to like win in Rome, do like the Romans, I have to assimilate. So um, I decided that I needed to look and act like the other people I was around. And so mid-90s is kind of like slightly post-grunge and there's actually this like fashion thing that was happening. Some of you might remember it was called heroin chic, which basically meant you were supposed to look like a stylish drug addict. I don't know why, I'm just reporting. Um, and so like the, for, for, for the gals, like the thing was to look like Courtney Love or, or, or Kate Moss or kind of, which meant like you kind of cut all your hair off. Well, you paid a lot of money to have somebody do this for you, but it looked like you cut your hair in the dark with safety scissors like when you were five. And then you dyed it like a really crazy color with this stuff called Manic Panic. Some of you might remember this. It was like, it was like purple or pink. Or I had white hair with purple highlights. And um, you, all your clothes were thrifted and we'd get like these slips like actual like underwear, but we wore them as dresses. And then, and they were vintage usually like from the 50s and then we'd get these granny sweaters with like cool embroidery and jewels all over them. So we kind of looked like we were slightly senile, old people who'd wandered out, you know. <laughs> and then, you know, just to, so it was clear that we were like tough and we were like feminist and we meant business. We wore like these, these like, they were like Doc Martens, except they were platform. They were called Fluvogs, so we wore platform combat boots. <laughs> so, and now that I have children, I know, I, I, I have seen my children dress themselves, and I know this look, it's, this look is called Angry Toddler. Um, <laughs> so, so I was working in a used bookstore making $6.50 an hour, dressed like an angry toddler. And the other thing that went along with this angry toddler look was like the attitude. Like, I don't know if you guys remember, but like there wasn't like a service with a smile thing happening in the mid-90s. Like, 
everybody was really, really cranky. I don't know what the deal was, but like if you got your espresso from the guy at the cafe, he was like, what's up? And you felt like you were like privileged to be receiving the espresso from this person who was clearly superior to you. And that was just like the deal. And it's probably because everybody was so underemployed. This guy probably had like a PhD in philosophy and he was really pissed off to be serving coffee. So. That was the deal too in the bookstore. Like we were generally surly, so I tried to be like mean, which was kind of against my upbringing. So, but I was doing my best to be very like cranky. So I'm cranky, dressed like a toddler, working in the bookstore. It's Christmas Eve. Now I did not want to be working in the bookstore on Christmas Eve. This was the first Christmas Eve in my life that I was not home for Christmas with my family. For one, I was too broke to get a plane ticket home. And, then, and my parents probably could have sprung for the ticket, except that I was so low on the totem pole at the bookstore that I actually didn't have the day off. And so I couldn't get the day off. And while now I would be like, OK, priorities, this job is stupid. I should get a different job. Then I was so afraid that if I lost my job, that I wouldn't make rent, and then I would like fall out of San Francisco and I would have to like creep home with like my tail between my legs and weird hair that um, I was like, okay, I have to keep this job, I have to work. So I'm working unhappily on Christmas Eve rush at the bookstore and the bookstore of course wants to stay open like stupid late because it's Christmas Eve. And not only that, I have to work gift wrap. Okay, so like who here has worked retail? If you've worked retail, you know that gift wrap is like the ninth level of hell <laughs> on like a rush day. For me, it was kind of like Lucille Ball in the chocolate factory, you know, like, oh my God, the presents are coming and, it's, and I couldn't keep up and the tape was getting stuck to me and it was just, it was awful. And so there was this halo aura of stress ball around me. So like everybody could see that I was just emanating yucky vibes in the California terminology. And they didn't want to get anywhere close to me. And um, then suddenly, this quiet sonic boom of gossip goes boom through the bookstore because Susan Sontag and Annie Leibovitz have just walked in. Now, this bookstore would have been totally hateful to any celebrity that walked in and had been like an LA celebrity, like if the equivalent, 90s equivalent of like Kim Kardashian and Kanye West had come in, they would have been like, and like everybody would have been awful and mean to them. But Susan Sontag and Annie Leibovitz, these are like, super cool, super hit, New York-y, like super lefty, feminist, whatever. Like this is like gold standard celebrity as far as like the bookstore hipster brats are concerned. <laughs> and so everybody is like freaking out. And they're like, of course, because they're freaking out, they're trying to figure out like how to relate anyway and they don't even know what to talk about and they're just losing their shit. And so like they're talking about really dumb stuff. For example, the fact that Susan Sontag's footwear is terrible. They're like, God, she's wearing like white court shoes. This sucks. Well, maybe she's a feminist. It's okay if she has like ugly shoes. I don't know, man. They're freaking ugly. You don't wear that shit. So like, and everybody's really more concerned with Susan Sontag than Annie Leibovitz because, you know, she's the writer person. Nobody can quite remember what Susan Sontag has written, but it was important in the 60s and 70s. And if you were an English major, you had to read against interpretation, so you remember that. And then meanwhile, everybody knows, of course, Annie Leibovitz, she like anoints everyone with celebrity status by taking their picture. So they're in there and everybody's freaking out. The biggest thing of all is that Susan has double parked in front of the bookstore 
which is a big deal because the bookstore is on this street called Clement Street, which is an a Asian neighborhood in, in San Francisco, and um, there's all these grocery stores and restaurants there, which means that if you double park, the odds of you getting hit in the head with an orange bok choy or a half a pig or a fish are really high. So if you're going to double park, that's like some serious balls. So everybody's like, whoa, Susan Sontag double parked. And she's bold enough to wear the bad shoes. Like, what's up? This is fun for a minute. And then I sink back into my personal private hell of gift wrap. And I actually forget that they're in the store because I'm just so caught up in my own stress case. At one point, I, suddenly I look up because there's this person in my, in my business, like all up in my personal space. And I look up and it's, it's this person who's like a woman but looks kind of like Woody Allen. <laughs> but with long hair, maybe like an Afghan hound glasses, and she's smiling at me from like a great height because she's very tall and I'm very short, and I don't recognize her at all because I'm in my own like little stress bubble of hell. I've like even forgotten there's anybody famous in the store, and she goes, can I help you? And I'm like, what? And she says, can I help you? You look really stressed out. Can I help you? And I'm thinking, oh my God, everybody has seen how much I suck at wrapping presents. They know. And I, then I also think, they're coming over the wall. Like, the people are going to come <laughs> over the wall into my space. It's going to be anarchy. And so I wish that the title of this story was, like, How I Wrapped Presents with Annie Leibovitz on Christmas Eve and We Became Buddies. But it is not. This is the story of my lesser self. So, unfortunately, instead of my prefrontal cortex, the limbic system took over. And I was very afraid about people coming over the wall into my personal space. Completely irrational, stupid, but it's what happened. So instead of saying, like I was trained as a Southern child, why, yes, thank you. I would so love to have your help wrapping presents. Let's do this together. I did not say that. Instead, I gave her the stink eye. And I said, ma'am, the way you can help me the most is if you get back on your side of the counter. And you know, bless her heart, she did. Wham, she moved. Like, she went so fast, her leg came up over her shoulder, and she was gone. And she was kind of laughing maybe a little bit as she did it, but she was like, had the penitent pose on the other side. I looked like a cranky toddler, like there was no reason for her to take me seriously, and she did. Part of my brain that is like Southern trained was like, that was really not nice, Wesley. You should not have done that. And then the other part of my brain was like, um... Yeah. And I didn't really recognize that I had done a horrible thing until suddenly there was a voice hissing in my ear. And it was my manager, who was also co-owner of the store, and he said, Wesley, do you realize you were just rude to Annie Leibowitz? And I had not realized. And I said, no. I knew I was so fired. Now, to his credit, he did not fire me until the new year. Like, he, I think he fired me on January 2nd. Um, but the walk home that night, because I lived walking distance from the bookstore, was really bad, because I was all alone, and I was walking home in the dark, and it was cold, and I wasn't with my family. It was Christmas Eve, and I knew baby Jesus was ashamed. <laughs> and... <laughs> So he fires me, and I knew I deserved it, so I took it, you know, I'm, so, I'm sorry. And the thing was, though, is he was a Californian, he was a San Franciscan, so he was firing me because I had been rude to this specific person. 
But I was a southerner, and I knew the reason why I deserved to get fired was not because I had been rude to this specific person, but because I had been that rude to anybody. Y'all know, we all have this training, right? And, and so it was kind of like in one of those Bible stories or one of those ancient Roman or Greek stories where like, they talk about like Jesus came down and he walked among the common people and nobody recognized him. And there's usually like two or three people who like aren't nice to Jesus. And then there's the person who doesn't recognize Jesus but is nice anyway and then great wealth and wonderfulness are showered upon this person. And I was not this person, I was one of the previous assholes. And so I deserved to be fired, and I was. But on another nice southern note, like y'all, I had come to San Francisco to go into publishing, and I did not go into publishing, I got a job in the bookstore. And you know, all roads lead to salvation, because after I got fired, I was so afraid of having to come back to Shreveport, which I did later anyway, but I was so afraid of having to come back home like a failure that I got a job in publishing. Like I got a job working in magazines and I stayed out there for like 15 years and so like it worked out. And so if it hadn't been for Annie Leibovitz being nice to me and me responding poorly, I might still be wrapping presents in a socialist bookstore or making six fifty an hour. If you'd like to experience one of our live storytelling events, tickets are already on sale for our next two-evening live event, Mommy and Daddy, on March 11th and 12th at the East Bank Theater. You can get those tickets at www.allyallblog.com tickets. And we're already on the lookout for stories for that evening, and so we're looking for stories on the theme of motherhood and fatherhood. So if you have one or you know someone that has one, please reach out to us. Our email address is hello at allyallblog.com, or you can even call our story hotline at 318-582-0665. That's 318 582 0665. Thanks, y'all.